For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, hear how love for a park and a personal loss helped a community find common ground. Visit Sun Sounds of Arizona, a Tucson nonprofit that reads for people who can't. Meet Jannie Lee Simner, a Tucson author with imagination to spare. And visit an unconventional yoga studio. Those stories are here on Arizona Spotlight. Pima County will ask voters to approve more than $800 million in loans this fall. That includes money to expand health clinics, libraries, and accelerate local businesses. Less than 1% of that money would go to a bustling park on Tucson's west side called Joaquin Murrieta. The park was born of civil unrest in the 1960s, and residents have never stopped advocating for it. Mariana Dale has the story. Joaquin Murrieta Park is 43 acres of baseball fields, playgrounds, and ramadas on Tucson's west side. It's home to Senior League, Softball, and Western Little League. Sherry Hoskinson knows the park. My uh, boys played ball at at Murrieta Park. Um, My youngest son played and my oldest son coached him, and we spent years sitting on bleachers at Marietta Park and playing games. More than a decade separated her oldest son, Lee, who's now 28, and his younger brother, Harry. He was always the one that was leading the chants in the dugouts for the other players and and first one to do, you know, a backflip when someone had a great play. Hoskinson has five children. Two played baseball, and everyone went to the games. So having the whole family come out and sort of sit in the heat and watch all the games, it was it was a way that our family supported our members. Joaquin Murrieta Park is the setting for fond family memories, but it also has problems. Gophers and bad irrigation made the ball fields infamous, Hoskinson says. Come to be known as the western bounce. A wild ball hits a gopher hole and, you know, can actually injure uh, a player, hit him in the head after a bounce. Hoskinson and other parents from Western Little League dedicated countless hours at public meetings advocating for investment in the park. My youngest, Harry, uh, one of the reasons we became involved aggressively is that he passed away uh, last March. Harry died at age 13 in an accident. Hoskinson says her son had big plans after Little League. He was going to play professional football or baseball, but first he would join the Army. To me, he's just, he's Captain America. He is, you know, honest and integrity and watching out for other people and kind of that blonde look. Instead of gifts or flowers, Hoskinson asked people to give money to fix up Joaquin Murrieta Park. About $20,000 has come in so far. Gentlemen, bring it in. This past spring, we were uh, able um, to um, use the Harry Hoskinson's Memorial Fund money to help pay for the new fence that they built out there. That's Dan Castro, a Western Little League parent. He says he remembers Hoskinson's son from past seasons when his own son played on the opposing team. I look back and I see the photos and I I totally remember him. And um, now I know that Harry is here. He's a part of our teams. He's a part of our league. And 
he still lives within all these little guys out here. Harry's death taught his sons about the value of life, one of the many lessons Castro says they've learned on and off the ball field. Because not everything's going to go your way. You might come in last place or you might finish second, third, and not always get that championship. And that's kind of how it is in life. You know, I try to instill those, those values of, you know, giving it 100%. Whether Castro's sons win or lose next season, it will be on new grass, paid for in part by the money from Harry's fund. There's uh, still quite a list of scoreboards, uh, field uh, improvements, the uh, spectator areas. Um, I think our snack bar is in pretty good shape, though. The recent changes haven't gone unnoticed by Christina Ballesteros. She and her husband watch their grandson's practice, rain or shine. You go out and really enjoy just walking around the park, you know, before there was a lot of gopher holes. And you would have to be looking down, you know, because it was dangerous. Councilwoman Regina Romero represents the West Side. She says when the economy plummeted in 2008, the city saw years of increasing budget deficits. The Parks and Recreation Department budget shrank almost 30 percent in the last decade. Because the city of Tucson lives through sales taxes, and when people stop buying, um, cities really feel it. The Pima County bond issue is one way to add money for community projects. Voters are asked to approve a property tax increase to pay for the projects. Joaquin Murrieta Park is up for $5 million of funding. Even though it has lots of need, it is highly used. And it is not a park that's just there that nobody goes to. With or without bond funding, Romero, Western Little League, and Jerry Hoskinson say they will continue to seek improvements. Hoskinson hasn't been to a game at Joaquin Murrieta since Harry died, but the park is on her mind. Working to improve it is a constant reminder of her son, just like the figures of Captain America she keeps on her desk at work. Harry's still mine, and I, you know, my relationship with him is not done and it's not gone. It's very different. And caring about the things that he cared about is a way that I continue to recognize that. I don't want to just continue to look back for Harry. I want to be able to look ahead and look around and and keep track of. And I do keep a track of the ways that Harry is in the world. Harry's baseball family remembered him in a balloon release at the park in March. A video on the Little League's Facebook page documents the event. One of the planned changes to Joaquin Murrieta Park is the dedication of a baseball field to Harry Hoskinson. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Mariana Dale. A unique nonprofit is now celebrating 30 years of service. Sun Sounds of Arizona provides 24 hour radio and web access to print media for those who can't read. I visited Sun Sounds Tucson Studio to find out how the staff and volunteers get the word out. This is Sun Sounds of Arizona in Tucson, reading to make a difference for you. I'm Mitzi Theron, the station manager of the Tucson affiliate. And what was your initial inspiration for getting involved in this endeavor? I was actually going to the blind school Savvy, and 
teaching computers to other people that were visually impaired. And I heard about the job there, so I just applied, to be honest with you. I didn't know anything about it. I was just looking for a job. How has the demand for your service changed over the years? A lot of people, you know, of course, military, eye problems, everything. It's just there's more and more visually impaired people out there. We hear that all the time. We have four stations in Arizona. And what Tucson does is we do the Arizona Daily Star. And then, like, maybe Phoenix does the Republic. And then we do our local grocery ads, our department store ads, sales, all our programming that's in just Tucson. We do the local stuff. Hello, and welcome to the Green Valley News Show. We have every Monday and Wednesday mornings at 9.30. My name is Bill, volunteer reader here at Sun Sounds. And let's see what we have in today's Green Valley News. I, I just love working with the volunteers. They're wonderful. They, they never come in really very grumpy. <laughs> you know, they like what they're doing. They're here. They want to help us. They want to read. And that's another important part of my job that I really love. You know, of course, I don't like writing the grants. Fundraising's hard, all that. But it's the volunteers that are so fun to work with. Murray Everson has been the volunteer coordinator at SunSounds for 14 years. To begin with, the users are folks with uh, a disability that prevents them from being able to read the printed word. It could be a visual impairment. It could be a physical impairment of some sort where they can't hold a newspaper. The point is, is they're no longer able to read print. So we give something to them that they can't normally get that maybe they used to be able to get. Those are, that's just some of our services. We also read on Wednesdays the uh, grocery ads for one hour between noon and one. We read uh, the Green Valley News and Saharita Sun twice weekly. We have some other special shows that we read live, like Super Savers, we call it, coupons. And we start out with the drugstores. CVS, they have a lot of deals. And on the very front page... Where do you find people who are willing to dedicate their time to doing this kind of reading? Um, Mostly, it's people that have an interest in reading. They might have somebody in their family that has a disability, that they know of us that way. Um, The good news is, is we have hundreds of volunteers statewide. And a lot of them have professional backgrounds, as I said. A lot of them have uh, folks that they know that have disabilities. We're very blessed to have um, volunteers that have been with us for years and years. People that get into doing this, they really enjoy it. They really like doing it. And very often we have people that stay 10, 15, 20, even 25 years with us. Jeff Grant is now Director of Operations. He started as a volunteer for a simple reason. So I like reading aloud. <laughs> and so um, someone told me about this organization, and I came in and did an audition, and uh, I managed to pass with great generosity from the people who gave me. No, I was very nervous. I think someone saw something in me that uh, would later grow. Um, I'm responsible for getting us on the air and making sure we stay on the air. Is SunSounds able to acquire the equipment that it needs on a regular basis, or do you have to sometimes be a little bit more creative when you need to replace a broken part or something? Uh, Definitely be a little creative, uh, or more than a little creative. 
Uh, listeners, we're going to read comics to you for five minutes or so. Murray and I are going to take turns, and I'm going to start with Sally Forth. So uh, we see that the husband... My name is Sally Joe Francis Collymore, and uh, one day I was walking down to the chiropractor, and I saw this the door, and I thought, I need to know what's going on in there. So I did. And the first day I made a recording. <laughs> it put you right to work. Yeah, it put me right to work. What was the first recording you made? I read a poem because I don't think he really had anything for me to do. He just didn't want me to get away. <laughs> so I read the poem, and um, I decided I was going to come back, which I've been doing. And I just really enjoyed it. I like working with everybody in the office. There's a camaraderie. And a lot of understanding and compassion goes on around here. Again, I spoke with station manager Mitzi Theron. You mentioned that veterans returning who may have had their sight damaged, that they find the advantages of using Sun Sounds. But is a newer generation, is a younger generation, I should say, mm -hmm. taking advantage of this service? Well, they are, but it's almost like in a whole different way. What we've actually done is younger people, of course, they don't like a radio, you know, and to sit and listen to a radio. So we stream on the computer. You can get us on an MP3 player. You can get us on iPods. You can get us on all that now. And that's how the younger people listen to us. What's an example well, of the kind of programming that you might offer to a younger listener? We have books, novels. Then we have, um, like, Teen Magazine. We read from that. <laughs> everybody likes this. I think we read articles from Playboy, <laughs> and, and everybody asks, do you describe the pictures? And we say, no, sorry, <laughs> we don't. But, of course, you're going to get a little bit younger people listening to that. Um, just the, the stories that any, any age would enjoy. When you talk to someone who may be dealing with a new visual impairment or physical impairment that makes sun sounds a, a good uh, match for them, do you find that they're surprised to know that you're here? Oh, yeah, I go on TV and somebody will be watching it and they have a blind mother and they had no idea we existed whatsoever. So that's, you know, that's why we do like I'm doing right now, get the word out because it happened with me. When my vision went, no one in my family was visually impaired. So I was pretty much devastated. They did let me know I was going to go blind. I didn't really tend to do anything. I was just in shock. Uh... And so there was my mom trying to do everything she could to figure out, well, what can I do to help her some? What, what's out there for her? I get calls like that constantly. The other thing is Sun Sounds is not just for the visually impaired. And that's what we're really trying to push right now, too. If, let's say, you have dyslexia, let's say you have arthritis so you don't hold things well, you, there's any disability out there where you can't read printed material good. doesn't mean you have to be blind and you can't read it at all. If it's hard for you at, at any reason, then you can get the service for free. Every time you tune into Sun Sounds, you know we'll be here reading for you. Sun Sounds has been on the air in Tucson every day for 30 years now. Thanks to the crew at Sun Sounds Radio for letting us backstage. We have a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org.
Jenny Lee Simner says she's always had a big imagination and that learning to focus it and overcome her shyness were the keys to becoming a published writer. Simner's genres are fantasy and books for young adults. I ask her to begin by describing her basic approach to creating a work of fiction. In terms of writing, I am a chaotic, jump-in-feet-first sort of writer. So I generally begin a story with an idea, a mood, often a scene or a character, a bit of language. And I jump in with my first draft, and I find out where it's going. I find out what the story's about. My first draft would be coherent to nobody but me. So there are writers who are careful outliners and careful planners. I am not one of them. After the first draft, I look at kind of the... I look at the messy terrain that I've mapped out, and I see what I can find there. And then over subsequent drafts, I make it look like I only just thought of it and like I knew what I was doing all along. What for you are the primary considerations that make writing for young adults different? I think the main thing about a story for teens is that it's written through a teen perspective. Someone at one point said to me, that if you're writing about that time you saved a sinking ship many years ago and how it changed your life in the 50 years that followed, you're writing an adult story. If you write about being 15 and saving a sinking ship, you're writing a young adult story. So if you're writing through teen eyes and about teen concerns, then I think a story is young adult. And when I write, I tell the story I want to tell. I don't start off thinking I am writing for teens. I just put myself into a teen mindset and look through a teen's eyes and tell that story. How did fairies come to play such an important role in your fiction? I was already fascinated with fairies as a reader when I began writing. It was during one of the first booms in what's now called urban fantasy. And I was reading a lot of books by Emma Bull and Charles DeLint. And so I had fairies very much in mind. I was also reading some of the child ballads, such as Thomas the Rhymer and Tam Lin. And then one day, I wrote this opening, and I didn't actually know where it came from. I just started with the opening sentence, I had a sister once. And I found myself writing this scene where the protagonist, whose name I didn't even know then, was talking about how her father set her sister out on the hillside for having magic, because she and her father knew that magic had once destroyed the world. So she's being expelled from the family, sent, right. to the, sent to the fairies. And set out to die, basically to die or to be taken by the fairies. And there is a long tradition of fairy stories about changelings and stolen children, which informed that opening, but ultimately was not part of the story. But I wrote that opening, I got to the end of it, and I stopped. And I had this opening I loved, and I had no idea what happened next. So then I had to write the rest of the story to figure out what it was actually about and to do this opening, which I adore justice by telling the rest of the story. And now we'll hear that opening scene as published in Jenny Lee Simner's 2009 book, The Bones of Fairy. I had a sister once. She was a beautiful baby, eyes silver as moonlight off the river at night. From the hour of her birth, she was long-limbed and graceful, fairy pale hair clear as glass from before so pale you could almost see through to the soft skin beneath. My father was a sensible man. He set her out on the hillside that very night, though my mother wept and even old Jace argued against it. If the fairy folk want her, let them take her, father said. If not, the fault's theirs for not claiming one of their own. He left my sister, and he never looked back. I did. I crept out before dawn to see whether the fairies had really come. 
They hadn't, but some wild creature had. One glance was all I could take. I turned and ran for home, telling no one where I'd been. We were lucky that time, I knew. I'd heard tales of a woman who bore a child with a voice high and sweet as a bird's song, and with the sharp claws to match. No one questioned that baby's father when he set the child out to die, far from our town, far from where his wife lay dying, her insides torn and bleeding. Magic was never meant for our world, father said, and of course I'd agreed, though the war had ended and the fairy folk returned to their own places before I was born. If only they'd never stirred from those places, but it was no use thinking that way. Besides, I'd heard often enough that our town did better than most. We knew the rules. Don't touch any stone that glows with fairy light, or that light will burn you, fiercer than any fire. Don't venture out alone into the dark, or the darkness will swallow you whole. And cast out the magic born among you, before it can turn on its parents. Towns had died for not understanding that much. My father was a sensible man. But the memory of my sister's bones, cracked and bloody in the moonlight, haunts me still. Jannie Lee Simner completed her Bones of Fairy trilogy with Fairy After. She's a guest at the Pima County Public Library's Megamania Convention, Saturday from 2 to 6 p.m. at the Pima Community College downtown campus. You can hear more of our conversation at azpm.org. When was the last time you acted on a sudden impulse to yell or sing or jump or just stomp around? At an authentic movement class, spontaneous impulses are welcomed. Gina Sestaro and Laura Milkins are performance artists teaching this practice in Tucson. Next, we'll meet them in a story produced by Amanda LeClaire. Authentic movement is an embodied experience where you let your body be the guide. There's no set poses. There's no right or wrong way of doing it. It allows you to get into a deep experience where you're moving, but you're allowing your body to determine how you move, and it can promote healing, well-being, connection to body, mind, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a form that is used in a bunch of different ways, but we teach it as a practice. Now begin to slowly make your way to a standing position, but don't stand up quickly or in any preconceived way, any way that you've ever stood up before. Continue this process of stretching and moving as you come into a vertical stance. It was um, started actually in 1950, so its authentic movement is quite old. It was originally known as um, movement in depth, and it originated in dance therapy, but it is not a um, form of dance. There's no poses to learn or steps to learn, so it's, a, it's movement as an expression of your unconscious, and it is, involves tiny movements to big grand movements, and it also includes vocalization. Now the first thing we're going to do is we're going to open up our voices in a very simple way with just an ah sound, but really opening and loud as you can.
still vocalizing. Don't stop vocalizing. Keep that, take a breath and open again. For me, I took a workshop and it literally changed my life. <laughs> it changed my relationship with friends and family. It changed my way of working as an artist. After doing the workshop, I really wanted to be more vulnerable in my life and also be in my body. You know, pay attention. I did a little series of things where I was like paying attention to sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. Like each day I'd just take a day and be mindful. And I realized how much we're on autopilot. Try stomping around the place. What is the feeling of stomping? What is the sound you want to make when you're stomping so much? What does it feel like? Well, I started um, with Authentic Movement in the early 90s when I was living in Boston, and I approached it or I came to it through a therapeutic reasons. And so when I began working as a performance artist, it was a natural coming together of like my earlier experiences and then creating performances. So I use authentic movement to develop all of my performative work. Um, it's an integral part of what I do as an, as an artist. The very last thing that we're going to do now is we're going to play with joy in our body. Spinning, skipping, hopping, connect with that young self that had no inhibition about movement, that loved to move for the joy of movement. Make joyful sounds as you're moving. We do a little bit of guided movement to just get people in their bodies and to break down barriers. And, and um, some of that is just really about silliness, like getting really like breakdown. You're not here to look cool or to be graceful. So we do some exercises that are very much about that. And then people go into a 15 minute improvisational cycle. And then the remaining segments of the class are based on processing the experience that they just had. And that kind of connection to your body, to your senses, to your sense of place, to your friends, to your family, to the people around here, to your community, it starts expanding out and out and out from simply connecting to your own body. So it's like one small thing, you know, doing, doing, doing simple movements. It sounds kind of incredible, but you just let your body move and something opens up inside. That story was produced by Amanda LeClaire. Gina Sestaro and Laura Milkins teach classes every Sunday and Monday at the Spiral Journey School of Movement on East 9th Street between 3rd and 4th Avenues. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>